This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LESSDUMB. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart podcast in between episode 3, episode 21. In episode 19 of the You're Not So Smart podcast, we talked all about the placebo effect and our guest, our expert guest was Christy Erdahl, a psychologist and a professor of psychology and in Colorado, who was the person who tutored and guided and led and advised the person who actually came up with the study that discovered placebo sleep. And the person who did the study, who came up with it was Christina Dragonich, a student of Christie's who um, at a very young age as an undergraduate was able to advance our understanding of the natural world by discovering placebo sleep and, and creating the study that discovered it. Uh, and placebo sleep is when you convince people that they got a good night's sleep or convince them that they did not get a good night's sleep. And then whether or not they got a good night's sleep, their behavior, their attitude, their decisions, their judgment, their ability to perform on a uh, test of cognitive skills is all that is affected by whether or not they believe they got a good night's sleep, regardless of whether or not they did. So I really wanted to get both of those people on the show, but I was only able to get Christy because of scheduling conflicts with Christina, who is working her way through academia, trying to become a neuroscientist, a doctor. So since I couldn't talk to Christy, uh, to Christina in the episode, I was able to get a hold of her later and interview her. And this is what you're going to hear today is the interview with Christina Dragonich, uh, who was really excited to be on the show and couldn't make it. And it made me sad. Uh, and it made Christy Erdahl very sad because she wanted her to, she really wanted Christina to be front and center. So, uh, no further introductions needed. Christina is working her way through academia to become a neuroscientist. And she's going to talk to us now about her research that she conducted as an undergraduate into the phenomenon of placebo sleep. Um, so tell me, Christina, how is it that you came up with the idea to even begin researching something as bizarre as placebo <laughs> sleep? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so in one of my first classes with Christy at Colorado College, she discussed a fascinating study that was conducted in 2007. Um, she might have already talked to you about this, but it was where researchers found that telling hotel maids that their job is a great form of exercise actually improved their health. So compared to a group of maids who didn't receive this information, those who were informed about the health benefits of their job were found to have actually lost weight and improved their blood pressure a month later. 
And after reading this study, I just became fascinated with the non-traditional placebo effect and began reading more of the existing literature, which proved to be much more widespread than I had expected. Um, The effective mindset on health extended from studies regarding visual ability to studies involving caloric intake and hunger. So when I began another course with Christy Ertl at CC, my research design course, um, I was already particularly interested in the placebo effect. And Christy gave us a wonderful opportunity to design an experiment that we would never actually conduct, but would instead create fake data for and basically go through the motions of. And the process inspired a lot of creativity since we weren't limited by the resources or the complexity of the design. So knowing that I wanted to do something regarding the non-traditional placebo effect, I soon decided on the idea of sleep. I'd always been particularly aware of how much I'd slept as... Um, Growing up, my parents had always emphasized the importance of the hours spent sleeping, um, and I felt that perhaps this awareness of my sleep could possibly affect my daily performance. And I then later found that sleep was an even hotter topic in college. You know, students would enter into exams with the discussion of their previous night's sleep fresh on their lips, and I wondered if this talk might not affect the performance on their exams. So I designed a hypothetical experiment in which patients would go in for an overnight study and then be informed that they had either slept above or below average based on fake readings, um, which would be followed by cognitive testing. And as I turned the project into Christy, she told me, you know, if you're interested in making this happen as a senior thesis, um, we can find a way to make it work, which was a really cool thing to hear. You know, I think that um, it's important to entertain the possibility of um, experiments that you don't necessarily think you will carry out so that you um, are able to to come up with ideas that you can then figure out how to manipulate with um, limited resources. So we designed, um, we devised a design by which we would convince students that we had measured their sleep quality from the night before. So I brought patients into a lab and I gave them a five-minute lesson on sleep, which informed them that um, that the sleep quality uh, that they had had from the night before could be measured by the percent time they spent in REM sleep and that sleep quality often predicts cognitive functioning. And I then informed them of a new technique whereby we could measure their percent REM from the night before by measuring the lingering biological markers of heart rate and brainwave frequency. Um, and I know I, that that sounds a little bit far-fetched. That's usually the response I get from people. But I think we had several things in our favor, one of which was that I was a neuroscience major with a lot of fancy equipment. Um, And second, interestingly enough, students knew very little about sleep. And then third, we connected them to a real EEG machine that responded when they would blink or move their head. So I think that um, provided a lot of credibility for the experiment and contributed to the belief in the manipulation. Um, So I don't know if that answers your question. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it answers the question, but it's also um, like, it, how old were you when 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 you conducted this this research? Oh gosh, let's see. So um, when I did the ex- the actual experiment, at that point I was twenty one. Um, so in my senior year, oh my god, at Colorado and, College, and that that is. What I take from this, besides the fact, and we we can talk about the placebo stuff, and that's all amazing, is mm-hmm. I was also I want people to hear this to realize that, um, you know, 
I, I sometimes like, I like to say that science is a verb. Science is a tool. <laughs> Sci- yeah. Science is something that was invented for us to apply to things. You know, it's not just this uh, institution that people think is um, in an ivory tower and then it's run by all these professorial um, uh, people who are in an institution that you that is just removed from daily life. You, as a 21-year-old uh, undergraduate, were able to advance the human species' knowledge of the natural world just by n- having a, a great instructor who could um, mm-hmm. show you what it means to create a scientific experiment. What um, I, I, That's what I take from it. I think that's absolutely yeah. amazing. What? How do you view... Um, science and critical thinking in general and how did uh how was that affected by both before and after conducting this research you know i think the process really showed me the importance of brainstorming as though your resources are unlimited um, and i think that's what christy did a wonderful job of showing all of us when she um came up with the idea to create a hypothetical experiment with fake data because once you hit on hit on an idea that is worth studying, there's usually a creative way to go about studying it with limited resources. Um, whereas you may not have considered the idea initially if you began your thought process in a more constricted manner or were overwhelmed by, you know, thinking about um, the experimental design or how you could actually carry it out. And I think there's also much more creativity involved in scientific research or at least in psychological research than people realize. Um, and I think Christy did a great job of showing me that 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 within scientific research, that's like any other creative project. You know, you just have to really think outside of the box. So, for example, in our study, manipulating mindset involves making our story believable. And in our case, that involved manipulations such as directing participants to turn their head, which was seemingly for the experiment um, while we were conducting the EEG, but which in reality caused them to view their EEG recording their movements. And I think that lended credibility to the experimental design. So something as small as that, I think, really was able to take a situation with limited resources and turn it into one where participants were still likely to believe the manipulation or in another vein, drawing complicated neuroscience diagrams on the board to further my credibility as a researcher. But again, going back to your initial question, I think um, what I really learned from this whole process is how it's important to just start with brainstorming as though you have all the resources in the world and just think about, you know, what has not, what has not been looked at, what, what naturally interests you as an individual. And then I think, um, without limits to that, to that thought process, um, it's then easy to find an idea that you are interested in studying. Um, and from there find a creative approach to studying that, that topic, if that answers your question. Oh, totally. And it's just, um, I just think it's wonderful that if you put this tool in the hands of, of of just anyone who understands how to use it, that you can that it it's the tool that generates results. And uh, right, I think you totally demonstrated that in this experiment. And um, right, I think the tool, and then also as you said, um, having professors and mentors like Christy who are able to, I think she was also very creative in the way she teaches her students um, in the in the project she does she decides to um, give to her students and the order in which she presents them. It just walks you through that tool um, that you're talking about. And so I think I think the people teaching 
uh, the scientific process are as important as the process itself. Mm. And ha- have you noticed that um, there seems to be a sort of um, a, a new burst of, of excitement and interest in in the general public in science and in, in um, and um, the new science communicators, uh, things like the new cosmos that have just come out and things like that. That seems to me that, that in the zeitgeist there is uh, a refreshing um, re, uh, renewed interest in these things. Because I used to um, like. You can look at uh, there are some um, there's some research that shows that people their belief in evolution has has uh, diminished in the United States since uh, the original airing of Cosmos, uh, <laughs> so that people were more scientifically literate in the United States uh, in some yeah. regards in the 70s than they are today. Mm-hmm. Um, that is can be really that's a really weird and disheartening thing at times. But I think with the advent of the internet, you know. How do you? What do you see from your perspective as someone who is just starting uh, a career in science? You know, I I would definitely be more in the vein of saying that I think there is a heightened interest in science um, as compared to before. But granted, I'm I'm still very young, so maybe I don't have the best uh, insight on that. But I do notice that um, you know I've I've gone to CC and I'm now taking classes at UC Denver and working at uh, a hospital in Denver at Craig Hospital. Um, And I've noticed just everywhere I go, whenever I talk about any piece of scientific research, um, people are generally very interested and are very ready to share another another experiment with me that they found interesting, either that they heard about on the news or that they read about in one of their classes. So I guess from a very personal standpoint, I, I feel like there is... A, a large interest and openness to science um, today. Um, that is fantastic, and I want to talk just a minute before we uh, part ways. The um, yeah. about how weird the placebo effect is. <laughs> um, I, weird. <laughs> I, I find I find it really difficult to accept, and then once I do accept it, I don't know what to do with myself. That <laughs> that someone can hear about a health plan, uh-huh. and then their health improves. Yeah. Uh, versus someone who didn't hear about that health plan. Or as in your experiment, someone can believe that they got a good night's sleep and whether or not they did act almost as if they did in some way. Um, and there was another one uh, in your in your paper about people who uh, they believe they were drinking. Um, yeah, that's they, one of my favorites. Yeah, they, they thought they were drinking a chocolate shake that had a lot of calories in it. Yeah. But, they, it, but it actually didn't have all those calories. But their body physiologically, uh, unconsciously, uh, started to produce enzymes that, um, uh, as if they had actually drank, had that, or produce different chemicals in the body, uh, peptides. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, ghrelin, exactly. So, <laughs> what do you think about all that? How does that How does that change your worldview to know that the mind works in that way? Um, I, you know, for me, and I, I want to be clear on the fact that there there is definitely a big difference between. Placebo studies. So, you know, a study like what we did or the um, milkshake study or the study with the hotel maids, um, there's a difference between the placebo effect where you have um, a an authority figure telling you something about your health and then you believe it and then your mindset in everyday life and what you tell yourself um, via self-talk affecting, um, affecting your 
you know, daily habits and your daily outcomes. So there is a big difference between those two. But ultimately, for me, the take home message is still that I think there's just such an intricate, intricate connection between the mind and body, which psychologists have known for a long time at this point. And I think medical sciences are just starting to catch on to this fact. And I think that just opens up a lot of um, possibilities for how we should view um, how we interact, interact with ourselves in a daily setting. And I think it um, definitely lends importance to, um, you know, viewing how we, how we mentally interact with ourselves, what our self-talk is, um, how we may take things for granted um, that authority figures say as well. Um, because one of the uh, components to the placebo effect is potentially classical conditioning where um, where you have a lifetime of medical treatments, for example, and then they serve as conditioned trials um, to pair the medical context with therapeutic effects. So um, if that is one of the underlying mechanisms for the placebo effect, then that is um, that is a subconscious response. But there have been interesting studies that show that once you then consciously um, you know, pay attention to a, a particular mindset or, um, or the, an idea underlying a topic that you are then, um, able to uncouple that effect. So after that point, an effect that was previously subconscious will actually, um, be much, much more weakened. So I think, I think it just really goes to show how much, control you do have over scenarios, even though you can't be, be your own authority figure and tell yourself necessarily that you had a good night's sleep when you know you didn't. But I think it still um, provides insight into how um, individuals' mindsets do certainly affect their health. Um, so that's what I take away from it. And are you, like, and I asked um, Christy about this, but I want to hear what you have to say too. Um, yeah. The most insane thing about all of this is that um, there's, no, I am not consciously aware of the very existence of ghrelin. Uh, yes. I have, or, and I'm sure many people in that experiment also have no idea that there are what peptides are, that the peptides are in your body, the function of them, and certainly not at the, um, at the chemical, you know, molecular level. Right. So how is it possible and feel free to speculate and just, okay. <laughs> how is it possible that I can, that belief can affect something that I am not conscious of in any way whatsoever? You know, that's a great question. And I, I don't have a full response because I'm actually currently trying to learn as much as I can about the potential underlying processes. I'm reading a really interesting book currently um, called The Patient's Brain and then another one called um, Understanding the Placebo Effect by Fabrizio Benedetti. And I'm only partway through both of them, but um, they really go into the neuroscience of, uh, of belief and of the placebo effect. So I would definitely recommend both of them to anyone who's interested in learning more about the topic. Um, but in terms of speculating, I think that... Um, you know, another model for the placebo effect is the idea of internal expectancies, which are associated with the inert treatment um, and are then responsible for endogenous regulation of processes um, that produce the changes associated with the placebo response. So I think, um, you know, it makes sense from the standpoint that there's top-down processing from your brain to your body. So, 
um, potentially, you know, you have one stimulus. So say the, um, the endogenous stimulus for, um, a certain effect in your body that travels through the brain and then you have a response. And I think in the placebo effect, um, potentially you're bypassing that initial stimulus and your stimulus is now just a thought created in your brain and not coming in necessarily from the environment. And then you still have the same response and it's going to connect to a similar pathway and just bypass one of the middle pieces of the process. So I would say that's my speculation, but I, I myself am definitely interested in learning much more about it. And I think, you know, we have a long way to go, um, regarding understanding it. I'm, I'm also really interested in epigenetics. Um, that was something I I studied quite a bit at CC as well. And I think that could play a role, um, in terms of, you know, the placebo effect or just mindset and the connection between, um, the mind and the body. But I think, I think that again, with that subject, we're so far from understanding, um, understanding how it really all works. So one of the things I'm very excited to see, uh, in the next several decades is how, um, how we learn much more about the mind body connection, um, which I think will elucidate a lot about the placebo effect and the underlying mechanism. Awesome. Um, Thank you so much for all of this. And, you know, um, I really, I think, I hope that you're an inspiration to other people who may be thinking about getting into uh, joining this field. And I'm really happy that you've joined this field and that you're working out there Thank on this you. stuff. Um, if somebody, uh, what, well, what's next for you? What's next for Christina? Um, next for me, I'm currently applying or getting ready to apply to medical school. Um, I'm working at Craig Hospital right now, which is a, a neurorehabilitation hospital. So I work with spinal cord and brain injured patients, and I'm applying to medical school in the hopes of eventually becoming a neurorehab physician. Um, I'm very passionate about the field and really excited about it. And that's one of the many things that Christy has inspired me to go into. Um, and I... I'm just so in love with this part of medicine because I think, you know, we're dealing with an area of medicine in which there's sort of the ultimate crisis where someone loses their either um, the ability to control most of their body or they even lose the ability to conceive of things um, the way they used to via traumatic brain injuries. And I think there's such an area within this field of medicine and such an opportunity for um, redefining and reinventing mindset. So I'm really going to take a lot of what I've learned regarding the placebo effect into the field. And of course you can't, um, you know, you're not going to go ahead and give a patient a sugar pill and say, oh, hey, this is you know, a treatment for your neurological spasms. But I think a physician's, um, the way a physician frames a treatment or a, a course of medication can really affect the outcome. And I've seen that through um, my studies of the placebo effect um, throughout college. So I'm really, really excited to learn more, more about all of it. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was a great pleasure uh, meeting you and getting a chance to have a conversation with you. You too. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be interviewed by you. So I really appreciate you taking the time. And now we take a break from our show for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code 
less dumb. Now, Squarespace has introduced something new. It's called Squarespace Logo. So in addition to building your website, you can now build your own logo for that site, business card, shirt, whatever you want. Just go to squarespace.com slash logo and check out the info. Or you can go to the Squarespace blog and check it out. Squarespace is a service for making websites. So they're constantly improving that platform with new features, new designs, and even better support. They have beautiful designs for you to start with and all the style options you need to create a unique website for you or your business. Squarespace has more than 20 customizable templates for you to choose from. And Squarespace has won numerous design awards from prestigious institutions like FWA, The Webbies, and Forbes. It's incredibly easy to use, but if you want some help, Squarespace has an amazing support team that works 24 hours a day and seven days a week in this place called the Care Bear Lair, where 70 employees work in New York City to solve all the problems and to help everyone make the best website they can. The customer support team has also won numerous awards, including a Gold Stevie Award. So this all starts at $8 a month. It includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year, and every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website. So your content will look great across every device, every time. Start with a trial today, no credit card required. Go ahead and start building your website. And when you do that, when you go to Squarespace, when you sign up, use the offer code LESSDUMB, L-E-S-S-D-U-M-B, and you'll get 10% off and it will show your support for this podcast and will help keep this podcast going. We thank Squarespace for their support and Squarespace is everything you need to create an exceptional website. And now we return to our program. This is an in-between episode, so no cookies, but I do want to give you some self-delusion news, which usually comes after the cookies. And that news is into something that has uh, newly been discovered in the realm of self-delusion called the continuity field. And this news comes to us from UC Berkeley. You can find it at newscenter.berkeley.edu. That's sort of the press release machine of the UC Berkeley campus. And they're telling you about the research that goes on at UC Berkeley. And this release, it's title is scientists pinpoint how we miss subtle visual changes and why it keeps us sane. So of course that really piqued my interest. Um, for a little background into this, uh, if you've read anything that you are not so smart, uh, read the books or you've, uh, heard any of the podcasts, you know, that, um, sometimes we talk about editing, uh, how the brain edits, what comes into your eyeballs and your ear holes and everything else, all those perceptions, all those Uh, sensory modalities, as they say in neuroscience, those things get edited before they reach conscious experience. So your subjective experience of the world has been edited before you feel it, before you experience it. And it doesn't match up one-to-one with the, neither the inputs that came from the outside world, nor actually what is happening objectively in the outside world. Uh, I was first clued into this. The first time I ever saw this was Darren Brown, the mentalist. He did this uh, show where he had two people talking to each other and then two people carrying a giant like painting would walk between the people having the conversation, interrupting the visual field of both people. And as those people passed between the two people having a conversation, one person in that conversation was replaced with a different person. So, uh, a person is talking to a stranger, usually asking for directions, and then that stranger is switched for a different stranger right there on the fly. And uh, in 
this all came from actually came from psychological research. Darren Brown uh, takes a lot of things from psychology and then puts them in his very entertaining mentalist programs. And this came from a real experiment into, uh, you know, change blindness, which is in the actual experiment, a person sometimes, I think they uh, would hand the person a, so a person had to turn in a test or had to turn in some official documents. And the person who received those documents would duck down behind the desk, which was kind of tall. And then a different person would stand up and hand back the document. And in research into change blindness, stuff like that, very obvious changes in your visual uh, field, very obvious changes in the things that you're perceiving. I think it was 20 to 30% or something like that of people were not able to, uh, were, did not notice, did not even realize that something had changed. I think my favorite form of this editing between what comes in through your inputs and what you experience consciously is uh, the editing that takes place with sound. So imagine you draw a circle on the ground around your body, sort of far away. And on one side of that circle, outside of that circle, sound is not edited by the brain to match what you see. And on the inside of that circle, all sound is edited to match up with what you see. There is a sort of event horizon past which you notice that sounds and sights don't match up. And that's because light moves a whole lot faster than sound. So say there's a person far away from you and they bang a gong you'll see them hit the gong with their mallet and then there'll be a pause and then you will hear the gong get hit. The same thing would be true for say like somebody firing a starting pistol, a starter pistol far away from you or um, smashing symbols together or whatever. At a, at a certain point, uh, as that person moves closer and closer, the pause between what you see and what you hear will disappear. And that's because they've moved within the, within the perimeter that has been evolved, um, that has, uh, been selected against through adaptation, uh, through the course of natural selection, there is a perimeter around your body that your brain takes, uh, the lag between what you see and what you hear and removes it. And that's sort of amazing to think about <laughs> that, uh, that at all times you're not actually experiencing what's happening out there. Objectively, you're experiencing uh, an edited version of it that is not accurate, but it's more useful. Uh, similar things happen with saccades. That's the uh, the really herky-jerky movements of the eyes as you move from one place to the other in your visual field. You don't smoothly move your eyes around. They actually go jerk, 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 jerk all around the place. And uh, you don't experience those jerks. You experience a, uh, a smooth and uh, continuous visual experience because your brain edits out all the in-betweens. And if you want to really experience that, look at yourself in the mirror, look in, in one iris and then the other and go back and forth really quickly and notice that you don't experience the blur in between because it's been edited out. So these researchers at UC Berkeley, they have uh, pinpointed another way that the brain edits our experience, edits out things that would normally confuse us. And they're calling this, uh, this thing, the continuity field, this thing, this, gener this is a, something that the brain generates to keep you sane, as the uh, headline says. So Yasmin Anwar wrote this article, and I'm going to read just a moment from this article. Uh, it says, uh, quote, without a continuity field, we may be hypersensitive to every visual fluctuation triggered by shadows, movement, and a myriad of other factors. For example, faces and objects would appear to morph from moment to moment in an effect similar to being on hallucinogenic drugs, researchers said. So um, you don't really realize it, just like with the eye movements and the sound stuff. 
but your head is always moving around forward and backwards, up and down, side to side at, at angles and everything. And, uh, so your, your visual experience, the, the information coming into your eyes, um, is, doesn't match up one-to-one with what you experience in consciousness because your brain is editing out all of that motion. Uh, the same thing is true for changes in light levels, changes in the angles of shadows, changes in the angles of everything. Uh, otherwise, you would experience it sort of like, they say in the article, some sort of psychedelic, strange, herky-jerkiness to um, your visual experience of the world. But you don't experience that. And they liken it to, uh, they liken it to like a, a movie in which uh, in, you're, somebody is in a scene and they're wearing one shirt and then the angle changes to uh, the other side of the room and they're wearing a different shirt or they're eating one type of food and uh, the scene cuts to another angle and they're eating another kind of food. Um, those are called continuity errors in movies and we don't notice in uh, when we watch a movie those continuity errors until usually they're pointed out to us. Sometimes they're glaring, but usually we don't notice them. And the same thing is true according to the researchers in our actual uh, internal lives, our uh, our experience of perception, we don't notice continuity errors, even though they actually are there. If we actually were able to experience the raw feed of our eyeballs, we would be astounded at how um, chaotic it is. But instead, the brain smooths everything out and makes it easier to understand by averaging all the different angles. And so they did research that they gave people, uh, they made people look at things in their periphery that were moving at different angles. And they asked the people to actually match what they thought was the angle of the thing they had just seen. And instead of matching it one-to-one, people tended to average, uh, the last three things they had seen out of hundreds. And you can go to the website. I'm going to put a link to this and you can see how it all works and you can play with it yourself. And the researchers said that, um, this is quoting from the article, essentially it pulls together physically, but not radically different objects to appear more similar to each other. This is surprising because it means the visual system sacrifices accuracy for the sake of continuous, stable perception of objects. And this is something you will see over and over again. If you research the sort of editing system of the brain is that, um, between perception and your conscious experience of perception between your inputs And once you experience in consciousness, the brain tends to edit and redact and add and subtract because instead of getting an accurate one-to-one version of the world, your brain tries to give you something that's more useful, but often less accurate. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. You can go to youarenotsosmart.com to find links to everything that we talked about today on the You Are Not So Smart podcast, information about both of my books, You Are Not So Smart and You Are Now Less Dumb, links to Facebook and Twitter and Google Plus and all sorts of other places where You Are Not So Smart gets social. I tweet at David McCraney and you can find You Are Not So Smart at NotSmartBlog. Also, we are a part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. So check out boingboing.net for more great podcasts. The intro music is by Caravan Palace. The song's name is Clash. And all the other music beds are by Drew Garraway. <laughs>